Hey, stranger, you're listening to Tell Good Stories. Okay, I'm ready when you are. So my name is Cole Bradley, but now I still don't know what to say to introduce me. <laughs> I'm terrible at this. What do you do? I do a lot of things, but I think... Um, the ones that matter kind of boil down to storytelling. I do some tour guiding stuff. I do stand-up comedy and I write for High Ground News, which is a local online newspaper in Memphis. Perfect. Yeah. And you studied anthropology in college. I did. I, I have, um, a master's in applied anthropology from the University of Memphis. When I read the description of what you were doing, I immediately thought of a specific story, a specific incident. And... I wrote about it. I posted a pretty long post about it on Facebook immediately after it happened. And I want to make sure that I got the details right because it's been a few years. So I was going to try to find that post real quick. Yeah, it would have been 2014 and it would have been June. Here it is. Okay. So what was your question again? Tell me about a time that you experienced great goodness or unexpected beauty. Yes, but it has to start with not beauty. So in 2014, my life kind of quit me, to be honest. Um, so my, my aunt, my dad's sister, my father's sister passed away and her funeral was on a Thursday. And my mother and my grandmother, my mom's mom came to the funeral, even though my parents have been divorced since I was a kid. But I mean, at some point this was her sister-in-law. So she came to the funeral. And at the end, as I'm putting my grandmother in the car, uh, my mom leans over and she says, FaceTime. Like, I still want that FaceTime. And, you know, just kind of like, hey, come see me, spend time with me. And at the time, like, I was in the middle of grad school, my last semester, um, trying to do my practicum, and I was working two jobs. And so there was just a lot going on in my life. And so uh, we had hung out a little bit, not a lot. And so she says, you know, FaceTime, I still want to see you. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I got it. And I shut the car door. And then the next night I get a phone call from my stepdad that my mom has been airlifted to the hospital and that something's happened. They think that she has had a brain aneurysm that's ruptured. So I get to the ER and she's actually okay. Like she goes into it, like she's, like fingerspelling, answering the doctor's questions by fingerspelling into my hand because they have, a, she, they have her tubed because she had lost consciousness at one point. And, but she's cognizant and she's totally, co like she can spell the name of these really long drugs <laughs> and all this other stuff to be able to answer these questions. And then she had emergency surgery on Saturday morning and she was great. Like she was the doctor's superstar. Like he was bragging on her how good she was doing, like no effects at all. And after the third day, she just tanked. She just literally, we saw her that morning and she was real agitated because we would get there. I mean, we lived in the hospital for a week and it was, you would get there and the, the doctors did rounds at six in the morning. So at six in the morning, we'd all be upstairs, like waiting. And we were there and she had been real agitated and I, I, we got kicked out after the doctor's round and we went, I went downstairs and I tried to take a nap in the like critical care family waiting room thing. And, and we went upstairs. I walked into the room just as they were wheeling her out 
to emergency surgery. They hadn't even had time to call down to the room to tell me because it had happened so fast. And they don't really know what happened. One thing went up and the other thing went down and it basically she stroked out the entire side of her brain and it wasn't the aneurysm site. It was something else, just effects, you know. And uh, the poor surgeon, like this genius hotshot neurosurgeon, you know, top three in the city was just in tears because he didn't know why. He was so humbled. And so it took a couple more days before she was actually declared. Uh, but it was a week to the day of my aunt's funeral. So the last time I had seen my mom outside of the hospital was a week to the day of my aunt's funeral. And then a month to the day, my cousin, who had been battling pancreatic cancer for like eight months, passed away. Um, a month to the day that my mom died. And you know, we, she and I have been close. She was the first person I came out to. Um, I introduced her to her wife. Like, I lived with her for a period. Like, we were pretty close. And uh, and then my grandmother also had leukemia. My father's mother had leukemia, and she would pass away within a couple of months. I had to put grad school on hold because um, I had to focus on what I eventually started calling the business of dying. So, you know, disconnecting my mother from the world, like that's, it takes a lot of energy, especially when you're 30 years old and it's very, very sudden. And my dad is a wonderful, my, my stepdad, who I call my dad, is a wonderful, wonderful man. Um, but he also struggles with literacy a lot. He has real bad dyslexia. And there's a lot of stuff in the hospital and a lot of stuff um, in the paperwork and, you know, all the filing and the paying bills and doing stuff he'd never had to do before that I had to help with. So I put grad school on hold, but because I put grad school on hold, all of a sudden my summer plans where I was going to get a big kid job and do all the stuff that couldn't happen anymore. And the contract work I'd been doing ended. And so all of a sudden I find myself on summer break with no job, no degree, no relationship, no mom, three other dead family members or about to die family members. Um, and I just didn't know what to do with myself. Like my life was in pieces. And so I did the responsible thing and bought a car <laughs> and I left. I left for two and a half months. I drove for 10,000 miles. Um, the whole country pretty much, except the South, because I've been to plenty of places in the South. I'm good on that for a while. But I drove the rest for the most part. And it was because of my mom, because my mom, years, like 20 years ago, she took out a life insurance policy that we didn't even know she had, and somehow it came up, and we found it. And it was this windfall of money that, I mean, I grew up poor, like, we never really had a lot of money. It's not something I'm used to having. And I knew that I could have done the smart thing and invested. But at the time, I was also reeling from the fact that my mother just dropped dead at 52 years old. And all I could think was I could die tomorrow. And my mom valued travel a lot, but she never really got to travel a lot. She let, made sure I traveled. So when I was a kid, she took out a second or she took out a loan and it took a second job so that I could go to Australia for three weeks on this like student exchange program. She put herself in debt to make me be, you know, to, so that I could have that opportunity. Like she knew that it was important and what you got out of travel, you know, that it, it grows you and it teaches you empathy and the wisdom that it creates, right? And so all I could think was, 
if I stay here, if I stay in this place and I just try to muddle through and pretend like nothing's changed, if I try to just stay here and find a different job and just tough it out in the last of my grad school, if I try to whatever, I'm never going to process this. I'm just going to shut it away and shut it off and I'm going to explode. Like, I don't know what to do. And so I bought a car with my dead mommy money. Um, my first new car ever. <laughs> and I bought an SUV where I could sleep in the back. And I bought a cooler so that I could go for cheap. And I did it as cheap as I could, but I still bought a fucking car. So there's that. Um, did you name the car? I sure did. Uh, so my car's name is Beagle because I'm an anthropologist and the ship that Darwin took was the HMM, or the Her Majesty's ship, right? HMS Beagle. Uh, when he was on the trip and writing the diaries about the Galapagos and all this other stuff. So uh, exploration, self-evolution, you know, becoming a new thing. It fit. I'm an anthropologist. It fit. So, yeah, my car's name is Beagle. And so me and Beagle took off. And I did kind of a pretzel. I started in Memphis and I went up through Indiana and with my sister, like stay with my sister and my nieces and my nephew. And uh, I took my mom's ashes with me. She was cremated, so that was part of the deal. Like, I took her with me everywhere I went, and I put her in all these places all over the country. And the first one was my sister and the family. We spread her ashes, and then I went to Chicago, and then I went to Philly for a conference, and then I went to Boston, and then I went to D.C. And I eventually continued on, and I went to Asheville and back to Memphis to spend Fourth of July with my dad and my family because I didn't want him to be alone for the first holiday. Holidays are a big thing, and my family were all real close, and we throw these big, huge pool parties. So I came home for the holiday, and then I went out west, and I did all this stuff, all this stuff, you know, Four Corners and the Grand Canyon, and um, Hoover Dam. I almost got arrested at the Hoover Dam. That turns <laughs> out it's not open at night, kids. Uh, even <laughs> if the old security guard sort of kind of waves you that way, he's just half asleep. It's not open. And I went to San Diego, and I drove all the way up California and stayed on a commune in the mountains for my birthday for six days because I didn't want to celebrate a birthday without the person who gave birth to me. So I literally went to a place with no cell service for a hundred miles so that I didn't have to get Facebook messages or phone calls. <laughs> um, and then I went to Portland and I went to Seattle and back across Montana and did like, you know, Rushmore and Crazy Horse and Glacier National Park and all these crazy places. And then I went to Denver and stayed with friends and um, came home. But the story is actually from D.C. So the moment of, you know, beauty in kind of all of this chaos. There were lots of moments of beauty. Like, don't get me wrong. It was an incredible trip, and I did a lot of processing that I really needed. And it was interesting, like, how my relationship with the ashes changed and how my relationship with solitude changed. And there were a million people I met along the way who were incredible souls that changed my perspective and helped me heal in some way. But this one was the thing when I first heard about your project and heard your question that this is the one that stuck out. So I wrote, I was telling you, I wrote about it on Facebook right after it happened because I didn't want to forget the details and I pulled it up and I was reading it, but I think I'm actually just going to read it. Um, this is the kind of brief moment of happiness. It was June 26th of 2014 and I was in DC. I was staying with my high school sweetheart actually who also kind of considered my mom like a pseudo mom and so that was a really 
you know, we spread ashes together and we had all of these moments of talking about her and it had been a really good trip. But in this particular instance, I was by myself. I was on the National Mall. I was going to the Smithsonian. I wanted to see the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian. And when I got to the mall, I realized that it was the annual cultural festival, which takes over like half the freaking mall. And it's in front of the whole area in front of the whole Smithsonian complex. And it's incredible. So the countries that year were Kenya and China. So they do two, two countries and they have all of these um, displays of art and of history and um, the Kenya stuff was really awesome because uh, there is a lot of anthropological stuff, a lot of um, physical anthropology of like prehistory or pre-human finds that have been in Kenya. So they actually had like a little dig site with like fossils and stuff where the kids could dig and they had the history of the major finds that had happened. And I thought that was so cool because I'm from the South and we don't teach our kids about evolution. So the fact that you get to like dig and be just around it. I was like, that's so cool. Um, and all this food and music. And um, so I kind of like traversed the lawn and I went to the Kenya one. I didn't, I actually never even got to the China one because the thing's so huge. But I go to the Kenya one and I look through all the stuff and I meet these amazing people and I buy some things. And then I go to the food because I'm starving before I go into the Smithsonian and I get um, these traditional foods and it's like a meat and some it's like a fish and some ricey stuff and it all smells amazing. And I walk off the major part of the festival and I kind of walk off to the side of the mall opposite of the major, the Natural History Museum. And I found this like shady spot uh, underneath a tree to just kind of sit and eat my lunch. And that is actually the setup for this story. So I'm going to read it. So it says, sitting on the grass eating lunch when a little girl runs up to me. Her name is Susanna. She's four. She's from Ethiopia. She chooses the places around me that she wants flowers to grow, turning her Aquafina bottle up and declaring them on their way to be bigger, being bigger than her brother. She shows me how she likes to run, straight and then sideways and then straight again. She runs our little patch of grass, bounding from passing tourist to passing tourist, telling them about the garden that she's growing and trying to convince them to run with her. None of them pay any attention to her. They just keep walking. Uh, she plops down next to me and she says, they're too busy to garden, but we're smarter than them. Her mother walks over from the bench, from her bench to collect Susanna. Her mother was an uh, an aid worker, a hot, like a, an aid worker for an elderly woman who ha she had brought to the park that day. Her mother smiles at me and shakes her head. She says, she talks so much. When we moved here, she quit talking. I was worried. But a few months ago, she started again, and now she never stops. And I look over and I see Susanna telling our shade tree to protect her new garden. I turned her back to her mom and I say, I think it's great. I wish we were all so excited about the world. And she makes some excellent points. And it was funny because on the side of the, the little area that we were sitting on was kind of triangular, um, almost like two triangles with the tree in the middle. On the other side of the triangle from us, there were a couple of other people sitting. One was on a blanket reading a book and one was eating, I think, or I don't remember, listening to music or something. And she had already tried bugging them and they wouldn't talk to her. 
But I did notice, like, the woman who was reading a book on a blanket, like, she kept sitting with her, and she would just sit, like, all up in her space. You know how little kids do? Like, they'll touch. Like, they have no inhibition about touching another person. It's really interesting. And also, it's funny to watch adults get really awkward. For me, at least, I knew her mother was standing nearby, and she saw us, and she saw us interacting. And I made it a point to, like, make eye contact and smile at her mom at least once and be like, hey, man, she's not bugging me. And she smiled back, so I think it was okay, but... You know, it was just a really wonderful experience in the midst of all of that to just sit and like, I had expected a moment of quiet and to just sit and observe, which is a thing I like to do because anthropologist, right? Um, just a professional people watcher, really. And what I got instead was this kid who didn't shut up and it was wonderful. Also, I think like observing a mother and her child together at any point on this entire trip was always something that I took notice of. Um, so like having that and hearing like her mother, cause one of the things I think that struck me the most after my mom passed was this idea of um, how do I know my stories if my story keeper's gone, you know? Like there were things that she told me within the couple of weeks before she passed that I didn't know about. And they weren't like significant or anything. They were just like, oh yeah, well back in so-and-so you did this or whatever. And so it really impacted me, this idea of where do my stories go if my storyteller's gone, my story keeper's gone. And so to hear like her mom talking about her and like this is what she was like when she was a kid. And it kind of made me feel like I'm sure my mother's told my stories or had told my stories a million times to anyone who would listen because that's what mothers do, right? So even though my story keeper's gone, like, some of them still come back to me. Other people tell me my stories that were there or that remember her telling them or whatever. And then even if I, they don't come back to me, they're still out there somewhere, you know? Many thanks to Cole Bradley for sharing their story. This episode of Tell Good Stories was made possible by Amy, currently of Jacksonville, Florida. I've known Amy for a whole decade and it's been a pretty damn good decade. Amy has always encouraged and supported me, whether that be by sending insanely thoughtful texts, songs, and presents, or texting me inappropriate emojis and jokes that make me laugh in public. Thanks for being my soul sister. And for today's episode quotes, first from modern philosopher Muna, I know a place, I know a place we can go, where everyone gonna lay down their weapons. Just give me trust and watch what happens. And second, a quote from Marianne Williamson. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. You can always reach me at admin at tellgoodstories.com or on Instagram at tellgoodstories. Details about the quotes are in the episode notes. All right, peace out. Am I cool enough to say that? <laughs>